Wow. That's greatness. Kids, don't you want to fly? Because he believes he can fly. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player that ever lived, in my mind. Listen to this. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. A dream I move. A dream I groove. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. The original Gatorade Be Like Mike commercial, which first aired in August of 1991, was the ad that inaugurated Michael Jordan's endorsement of the nation's number one sports drink. In all he does, Michael Jordan epitomizes a will to win, said Sue Wellington, vice president of marketing for Gatorade. Michael Jordan embodies what this brand stands for, tenacity, desire, and a thirst to excel. This commercial is a celebration of Michael. All of us, in some way, want to be like Mike. It's infectious, especially those that love sports. You can't help but stand in awe. My title today is, Want to Be Like Mike? Who defines the greatest? Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Kobe Bryant, Bill Gates, Brad Pitt? Growing up, MJ, or Air Jordan, was my favorite basketball player. Every time I watched him, I was in awe. I guess you could say I idolized him because... He had perfected his skill to an art in the game of basketball. Let's look at a few of his credentials, shall we? Basketball, five-time NBA Most Valuable Player, ten-time All-Star, started in all ten, member of six Chicago Bulls championship teams. I guess you could say he never lost when he was there. Three-time MVP of All-Star Games, Holds over 75 NBA records to date. Made top 10 greatest players in NBA history. Six-time NBA Finals MVP. Has 28 triple-doubles. Triple-double is having at least 10 or more points in scoring, rebounds, and assists. That's pretty fantastic. Shares his NBA record for most scoring seasons with none other than Wilt Chamberlain. Excuse me, seven and he's won the slam dunk contest three times. You can imagine why. He can fly and define gravity. But if that's not enough, look at some of his personal accomplishments of, of the road to greatness. President of Basketball Operations for the Washington Wizards, an advocate for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. He even built one after his father passed away. Former sponsor for Gatorade and Wheaties, member of the board of Make-A-Wish Foundation, has his own shoe and apparel line, Air Jordan Nikes, involved with several restaurants, serves on the board for Oakley. Here's one I love. Signed as a free agent by the Chicago White Sox. Do you remember when he played baseball? Not only did he play basketball, but he tried baseball. Not so good at that, but we'll stick to basketball on that. And he starred in the movie Space Jam, and one I didn't put up there, kids. He has even had his own Saturday Night Live spot as a host. Saturday Night Live. So what's greatness? Is it Michael Jordan? Well, let's look to the Bible. There was a man by the name of Solomon who attempted to achieve greatness. Listen to what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Call me the quester. I've been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I looked most carefully into everything, searched out all that is done on this earth, and let me tell you, there's not much to write home about. I said to myself, 
I know more and I'm wiser than anyone before me in Jerusalem. I've stockpiled wisdom and knowledge. And what I've finally concluded is that so-called wisdom and knowledge are mindless and witless. Nothing but spitting into the wind. I said to myself, let's go for it. Experiment with pleasure. Have a good time. There's nothing to it. Nothing but smoke. I wanted to get a handle on anything useful we mortals might do during the years we spend on this earth. Oh, how I prospered. I left all my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind. Left them behind in the dust. What's more, I kept a clear head through it all. Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, held back nothing. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. My reward to myself for a hard day's work. The words from Solomon. Just like Michael Jordan, Solomon had achieved greatness. Or had he? Let's look at some of his accomplishments. In verse 14, it says he had seen everything. In verse 16, he had wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it talks about him experiencing every kind of pleasure. Think about anything that you try or experiment with to fill that empty void or to make you feel happy. Because Solomon has tried it. He had wealth. It doesn't just stop at wealth. It lists his wealth. Houses, estates, gardens, pools, servants, animals, money, entertainers. Geez, he might have had a circus while he was there too. I'm not sure. He had everything he could think of. Verses 9 and 10. Solomon had it all, but for what? He accumulated all of this stuff that he thought would make him happy. But for what? Had he arrived at greatness? Some might think in the world that he did. You look at the list, the checklist, Looks pretty good on paper. Greatness. But folks, I think it's significant that at this point, the next verse shows that Solomon hated his life. He hated his life. Look at what it says. Then I took a good look at everything I'd done. Looked at all the sweat and hard work. But when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to any of it. Nothing. In one verse, he uses the word nothing three times. I think it's clear to say that he had not found what he was looking for. If he had a, if he had a song back then, a classic rock song, it might have been, I can't get no satisfaction. He just was looking in all the wrong places. See, smoke and spitting into the wind, it's pretty, pretty graphic, pretty harsh, but it means worthless, meaningless, and mindless. In the world we live today, especially us youth, we think that power, position, and possessions are going to make us great. These are all the things that the world says will make a person great, but they don't. So I ask the question today, how can we be great? What is greatness? We're going to look to the Bible, and Jesus is going to give us the key to greatness for our lives in Matthew 20. Will you please pray with me?
Heavenly Father, may you show us today, Lord, what it means to live great lives for you, Father. May we surrender everything, Father, for the cause for you, Father. And may you be with me up here, Father. May your word speak truth into the lives. May you humble me, Lord, and allow me just to deliver your message and your heart's desire for each of us today. We love you and we praise you and we give you all the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Matthew 20, 20-24, and Matthew 20, 20, 25-28. I've broken up the message today into two parts because I think it's important to read one text and talk about some things and then read the other text and talk about some other things. I think you're going to see quite a contrast. Let's read Matthew 20, 20-24. This is out of the New King James Version. If you have your Bibles, you can read it. If not, you can read off of the... Um, your brochure, your bulletin today. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. How can we fall prey to worldly methods of greatness? I think there's some examples that James and John, the sons of thunder, exhibited. I don't think that they consciously wanted to fall into these, into these, these vices, but I think through their request and through their own self-focus, you will see that we, just like James and John, can fall into worldly methods of greatness. The first one is selfishness. Let's look at verse 20 again. When the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with their sons, Kneeling down and asking something from him. Kneeling down and asking something. James and John used their mother to try to hide the request and lobby a more strategic approach of being the greatest in the kingdom. I believe through reading different accounts of this that James and John and their mother were present. And maybe they used their mother as a strategic approach. Hey, mom's with us. Mom wants what's best for her children, right? We can all sympathize and relate. A mom does want what's best for her children. And at this point, a mom wanted her children to be first in the kingdom, to have the highest honors. Verse 21a says, Jesus responds, what do you wish? And what I've done is I've put all of the text that I'm going to be talking about in yellow that has to do with James and John, and all the text in red that has to do with what Jesus says. What do you wish? is what Jesus said. Jesus simply listened to the request without getting angry or upset or even frustrated. But, had they listened to what he had just shared right before they had approached him? Let us see what they ask and then we'll talk about what he shared. Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Sit one on your right and one on the left. 
James and John's mother only wanted what was best for her children, right? It was definitely a family affair, and the mom wanted the boys at the top of the kingdom. She did not understand the principles upon which honors would be bestowed in the kingdom. I believe that Mark 10.35's account says it best. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is James and John. Foot in mouth, James and John. Sons of thunder, James and John. Very zealous, James and John. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I can't even think of saying something like that to Jesus to his face. Or let alone have my mom do it. Let me read that one more time. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. The boys had the audacity to demand what Jesus was going to do for them. They were only focused on themselves. No big deal. As they journeyed toward Jerusalem, maybe they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Because in Luke 19.11, it had implied this. The disciples thought that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem would signal the arrival of the kingdom of God. You can't blame James and John for wanting to secure their power and authority, ASAP, right? They wanted what was best. But it was selfish. And Jesus responded in this way, calm and collective. You do not know what you ask. Frankly, they did not know what they were asking. As one commentary put it, I love this, from McDonald's Bible Commentary. They wanted a crown without a cross, a throne without the altar of sacrifice, the glory without the suffering that leads to it. One more time. They wanted a crown without a cross, a throne without the altar of sacrifice, and the glory without the suffering that leads to it. Well stated. Let's focus more on what the cup stands for. It says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We're not left to wonder what he meant by the cup because, folks, he had just described it in verses 18 through 19. Look what it says. Behold, this is Jesus talking talking to his 12 disciples. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem... And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will be condemned, excuse me, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. These were the words that Jesus, their master and teacher, had just shared with his disciples. And James and John don't even skip a beat. Jesus had just told his disciples that he was going to suffer and die. Folks, this wasn't the first time. It was actually the third time that he had talked with his disciples of this foreshadowing to come of his death and resurrection. Matthew 16, 21. Matthew 17, 9. 22 through 23, both are accounts of this same kind of conversation that went on with Jesus and his 12 disciples. I just don't get it. How do you walk away from such teaching 
and say nothing to your master. How do you do it? They don't skip a beat. They immediately come up to him and ask him if they can be awarded the highest honors. Immediately. Zero understanding and zero sympathy for their master. They're more concerned about getting theirs. They believe to be great is to go and sit on his left and his right hand and have the highest honors and awards and be honored with Jesus. Yet they missed what he said. I ask this to all of you. How many times has someone shared something so personal or concerning, yet we don't even respond with a single word of sympathy? We don't let them know we'll be praying for them. We don't say anything. Nothing. We're too busy worrying about us. And if it doesn't affect us, we don't care. See, James and John were more worried about themselves. They were requesting to be exalted above all other people who had ever lived. That's a big request. All other people who had ever lived. They felt they were entitled to those positions. Their request also meant that everyone else would be put down, including the other ten standing at a distance. You know that their ears are pricking up and hearing this. Their brothers in Christ who they co-labored with and they did life with each and every day. Think of a brotherhood and how strong it was. Or was it? Folks, selfishness will not lead to greatness. Selfishness will not lead to greatness. Philippians 2.3, one that I learned at a very young age, says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Selfishness will not lead to greatness. And I don't know that James and John felt like they were being that way, but it sure comes off to me as I read this passage that they were selfish. And they had disregarded anything that Jesus had shared with them about his suffering and death. And they were more focused on how they were going to get theirs. Another way that we may fall victim to worldly methods of greatness is independence. See, when Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup? They said three words. We are able. Notice there's no narration. James and John went back to the corner and thought about what Jesus had asked them at first and really prayed about it and decided if this, if this is their, his will for them, that they would listen to it. No, they immediately jumped to it and said, we are able. We are independent, and we can do it. We are able. They responded to Jesus by boldly stating their false strength. Folks, how would they know if they would really endure until the end? How would they know if they could really suffer and drink the cup that Jesus was implying? I liken it to Peter's statement of strength before his betrayal. Lord, wherever you go, I will follow. We know what happened with that, don't we? Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Three times. There was absolutely no thought process. They quickly, without thinking, replied foolishly, We can, we will, we, we are, we, we are able. This showed that they could not do it Excuse me, this showed that they could do it 
on their own merit and on their own strength. They could be independent. By them saying that they were able, they made themselves equal with Jesus. We need to realize that Jesus responds to those who are weak and in need. Let me say that again. Jesus responds to those who are weak and in need. The type of people that say, Lord, I'm willing to do it by your strength and your strength alone. People are humbling themselves and saying, Lord, I'm not sure if this is for me, but if you are calling me into it, I'm going to be your obedient servant and I'm going to serve you in this way. By your strength, I'm going to exalt you, Father, not exalt myself. Independence, I think, is, is, is saturated with pride in the world we live in today. People want to be individualistic and independent. And I think that there are, there are bouts of pride that they're fighting with. We all deal with pride in our lives. And I think that James and John were there at this moment. I really do. And I think it's something that we, as not only the youth, but as a congregation, we struggle and we fight with this a lot because we want to look strong. Because the world tells us to be strong. The world tells us to do it on your own. But I share with all my heart that pride and independence will not lead to greatness. Pride and independence will not lead to greatness. Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand the mocking, the scourging, the beating, and the torture he was going to have to endure. James and John's confident answer, I believe, was based more off of their zeal than any type of knowledge or grasp or understanding of what had just happened and what Jesus had just shared with them. Youth, I share this with all the love in my heart because I was once right there with you. James and John did not fully grasp what the cost of commitment was. I think a lot of times in our life we say we're going to be there or we say we can do it, but our actions have to back up what our words say. We can't just give lip service. James and John had to commit themselves fully to the cause of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, nonetheless, says, okay, I agree with your response. You are going to be able but you're not going to know exactly what that you are able entails. So let me share with you what happens. In verse 23a, it says, You will indeed drink my cup. A little history on James and John. James and John had no idea what they were agreeing to. Although not suffering at the same level of agony that Jesus underwent, James would be soon executed by Herod Agrippa I, and John was the last apostle to die, being exiled to the island of Patmos. John was severely persecuted. He witnessed more deaths than any other Christians. Excuse me. He witnessed more deaths of Christians dying for their faith than any of the other twelve. My kids in my class, we've been reading the Jesus Freaks. I think it's pertinent to say that we are so blessed by what God's given to, given to us in our lives. And what Jesus Freaks is, is it's a, it's a book about martyrs, people who have died for their faith. Starting with little girls four years old that have shared that, Mom, I will go back to prison as long as you do not recant or renounce the name of Jesus Christ to these communist leaders. We remember the story of uh, Cassie Bernal 
and the Columbine shootings. And at that moment, when they put the gun to her head and they asked her, do you believe in God? She knew what Paul's words were. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And she said yes and took her life for the cause of Jesus Christ. And although James and John didn't know at the time that they were going to lose their life for the sake of Christ, they did. As Robert Little puts it best, James died a martyr's death and John lived a martyr's life. Jesus goes on to say, after you will indeed drink my cup, he shares with them that they will indeed drink his cup and they will share in his baptism. However, as far as who's going to be at the left and the, the left and the right hands of God, Father Almighty, that's not for me to say. For it is for those whom my Father has prepared. See, in the counsels of God, the places of his, the places of his right hand and left hand would only be given on the basis of suffering. Suffering. For him. Not accumulating stuff. Not defying gravity. Not having every worldly pleasure. Definitely not selfishness or pride or independence. But suffering. This means that the highest honors were not limited to a first century Christian. Folks, some living today might be awarded by their suffering for the gospel. Think of all those in other countries who are persecuted and are suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ. I think that their independence is shown even more because immediately in verse 24 it says, and the ten were greatly displeased. Yeah, I mean, think about if you were one of those disciples. You weren't James and John, but you were buddies with them. Think of Peter. Peter, James, and John were always together, the three of them. They were the closest three, the most intimate three of Jesus' 12. Think about Peter hearing that. Oh, shoot. He's going to be the greatest? No, he's not. I'm going to go over there. We've already tried to discuss this many other times. And they have. The ten others were probably indignant because they themselves wanted to be the greatest. They resented James and John for their selfish and independent requests. Independent saying, I want to, we want to be lifted above all others. And secondly, independent because they broke off of the group to do it. Folks, remember, this isn't the first time an argument had occurred about being the greatest. Look at what Luke 22, 24-26 says out of the message. I think it says it best out of the message. Within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. Leader act the part of the servant? Huh? That doesn't make sense. Note the sad irony in these verses. While Jesus faced the reality of being betrayed and killed... His disciples argued about which of them was going to be the greatest. Ironic, don't you think? Independence and pride do not lead to greatness in God's kingdom. But there's a plus side. 
there is a positive and encouraging message to be shared with you. What does lead to greatness? And I want to take the second part of these verses and share with you some of the ways we can be great in God's kingdom. There's a paradox. Jesus, radical greatness manifested by service. The world tells us to do it on your own. To be independent, to be confident, to be conceited at times. Get yours however you need to get it, by whatever means you need to. And Jesus says, lower yourself and humble yourself to a state of service and servanthood. Verses 25 through 28 of Matthew 20. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus turned the world's idea of greatness upside down and he made a revolutionary statement concerning greatness. I want you to think about being in an interview. Okay? You're going to tell the employer or the boss that you're going to do anything with confidence, right? That's what the boss wants to hear. He wants to hear that you are going to independently achieve greatness through your work ethic and your focus. That's what employers want to hear. That you don't necessarily need other people to help you. That you are self-motivated and you can do it on your own. And you don't need anyone else's strength but your own. That's what the world sees as an interview. A successful and great interview. Someone who they want to hire to work and serve in their company. Now think about being interviewed by the real boss, Jesus Christ. You go into the interview, you're going to give him your best. But you know what? He's not going to hire those into his kingdom who have a prideful and independent and haughty demeanor. Those who say, I can do it on my own, and those who are telling him what they're going to do, is he? That's the paradox. Our world teaches us to be great and to show strength and to show independence and to show in ways that I can take care of things on my own. But Jesus says, it's only by my grace and by my strength that you live. Let's look at what the Gentiles thought about greatness. In verse 25, it says, the Gentiles lorded it over them. The Gentiles viewed greatness in terms of mastery and rule in Christ's kingdom. However, Jesus viewed greatness through service, as I've shared with you. <coughs> Excuse me. As stated before, the measure of greatness isn't position or power or possessions. It's service. Yet another paradox. This doesn't make sense. How could service lead to greatness? And how and what do we need to do to become great in God's kingdom? Well, on the flip or the inverse of selfishness, we need to portray selflessness. Selflessness. Let him be your servant. Servant is a word to describe the selfless, the humble, the humble life that God honors. 
A servant who is willing to generally sacrifice for the sake of others. Are we that kind of person? I ask myself this. Am I a servant? Do I do it out of gratitude in my heart or do I point all the things that I do right and puff myself up in pride? And I can honestly say that I battle with this and so do a lot of us. The Bible says to let another praise you and not your own lips. The Bible says to humble yourself and the Lord will exalt you. In order to do that, we have to show selflessness. We have to be servants. I remember taking a job out of college at Mangia Benny, a really good Italian restaurant. And uh, here I am, four years of um, um, a business marketing degree at Azusa Pacific University, go Cougars. And uh, I'm at Mangia Benny, and they, I interview for the job, and I immediately want to go straight to waiting tables, right? But I have zero experience in waiting tables. So what do they do? They give me a host position, right? Here I am, 22, 23 years old, um, in the middle of getting my teaching credential, have a business marketing degree, could have done something in the business world, and yet the Lord says, nope, you're going to go sweep floors and wipe off menus at Manja Benny. And you know what? I learned something through that. That God can use us all to serve in different capacities, and that he has great things in store for us if we humble ourselves and we serve him gladly and with all our heart, because it only took a couple months until they saw fit that Doug's ready to go and wait tables. But sometimes we have to start at lower entry jobs. Sometimes we have to start at humbling ourselves so that the Lord can exalt us and make us great. The American Heritage Dictionary defines a servant as one who expresses submission or debt to another. And then it says, i.e., your obedient servant, next to the definition. We need to be obedient servants. The word serve, it's a fun little fact, the word serve and servant are used over 80 times in the Bible. Serve and servant. I believe Jesus was very intentional in what his purpose was, and I teach this to my kids each and every day at school. We are created to serve God first, and then to serve others. To serve God and to serve others. That should be our life motto. To serve God and to serve others. Because when we get to the kingdom, when we get to heaven, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be serving each other. So why not get a little bit of a slice of heaven down here and show in ways of gratitude for what Jesus did for us on the cross that we want to serve others because he served us first. Matthew 23, 11 says, But he who is great among you shall be your servant. Mark 9, 33-35 says, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Selflessness leads to greatness. But not only selflessness, here's the hard one to think about. Dependence leads to greatness. Verse 27, he doesn't stop with, with, with saying, let him be your servant. Then he goes to a more escalated word. Let him be your slave. Jesus escalates and dramatically uses a word that is synonymous to servant. Whoever aspires to greatness must not only be a servant, but must be a slave. We need to remember that we are dependent on God. 
We do not belong to ourselves, but to our master and owner. God loves to use those who say, I'm going to need a lot of help because I cannot do it on my own strength. Dependence leads to greatness. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, you are God's. Romans 6.22 says, But now, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have everlasting life. Folks, you're not in control to do whatever you want. You are only to do what your Master tells you to do. And I hope your Master is Jesus Christ. The word slave didn't mean bondage. It meant submission and subjection to our Master and Lord. The last verse, verse 28, says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man is the perfect example of lowly service. He came into the world not to be served, but to serve. Remember when the disciples were arguing about who's going to be the greatest back in Luke 22 through uh, uh, verses 24 through 26? Well, here is the kicker. Here's the last verse of that. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table that's greater? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Christ's motto, serve and give. It's amazing to think that the exalted Lord himself was humbled to the manger and to the cross. His greatness was manifested in the depth of his humiliation. Let me say that again. His greatness was manifested in the depth of his humiliation. And then he says, I paid a ransom for many. Having three times predicted his death, Jesus now finally explains to the disciples, especially to James and John, the purpose. A ransom is the price paid for slaves. Christ's life would be sacrificed for others. He would take their place. And he would take our place, your place, and my place. See, coming to Coast, I've learned something when I walk through these doors and when I walk out these doors. That if we focus on the cross and what Jesus was willing to do, it would make us want to serve him out of gratitude. But do we think this way? Or do we think we have to do it? Because mm, it's going to make us look better. Or because that's the only way we can secure our salvation. Let me say that one more time and then I'll close up. When we focus on the cross and what Jesus is willing to do, it should make us want to serve him out of gratitude, not out of attitude. Do we think this way? We should, because his death served to satisfy all his father's righteous demands against sin. Wrapping up, I have two points, quick points. The first one, I have a little bit of a chuckle. The world's methods of greatness may lead us to spit. You remember back with Solomon? He looked for everything, and all he got was a bunch of spitting and smoke. Let me explain to you what spit is. Selfishness. Pride. Independence. And one that we, especially in the youth, struggle with today. Temporal pleasure. Selfishness. Pride. Independence. And temporal pleasure. All I'm saying is this is a warning from God's Word. That if we want to achieve greatness, we need to be careful that we don't exhibit traits like selfishness, pride, independence, and temporal pleasure. 
But there's a positive, and there's an encouragement to leave with, and I want you to leave with this. Jesus' radical greatness is manifested by service. Here's my definition of service. Being selfless, dependent, slave-like, for those of you, that's slave with a hyphen, like, slave-like servants, being selfless, dependent, slave-like servants, fully surrendered to God. I close with this verse, Matthew 16, 24. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is real service. And that is what God is calling us to do. Don't look for things in vain like Solomon did. Don't look at people like Michael Jordan and say, he's great. He is great in the world's eyes. He's done a lot of great things. He's achieved a lot of great moments and, and, and really neat memories and awesome records. But that is not what God is calling to do. We're missing the point if we don't walk out here knowing that it's about service and serving others. And my charge to my youth, whether they are moving up into college or they're coming up from junior high into high school or they're starting new chapters in their life just in high school, is that you need to be out there serving others and sharing with them the gospel because God came to serve us, not to be served. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all. A very traditional and old hymn, but one that speaks true in all of our lives. I pray that it be your prayer and my prayer too. Will you pray with me? Father God, we do ask, Father Lord, that you would check our humility, Lord, and um, allow us to be humble servants for your kingdom, Father. Thank you for the words that you've shared. Lord, the, the strong message that is proclaimed, Father, that James and John, whether they knew it or not, were going to die for the cause of Christ, Lord. And I pray that we too would look at nothing in our life as significant except for serving others and serving Christ, Father. That is what you've called us to do, Lord. And I ask, Lord, that that would be our goal and our challenge as we leave here today, Lord. That we would look to your word as a direction and a guide map, Lord, for us to go and be obedient servants to your word, Lord. Thank you for humbling yourself by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, Lord. May we rejoice in the free gift of eternal salvation. And Lord, may we await with anticipation and joy of what's going to be in heaven, Lord. We love you and praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.